Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. In case you hadn't guessed by now, you're here today with Kara Williard, and you can check out all the things we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So we're coming into the ski season and there's still a lot of justified skepticism as well as hype around BOA Fit Systems on ski boots. And here at Blister, we have been addressing questions, concerns, and relaying our own thoughts from our time spent reviewing these boots last season, all of which you can check out over on our site, on previous podcasts, and more. But at our last Blister Summit, we discussed BOA and a bunch of other important boot questions like are buckles dead? And how important is weight when it comes to ski boots during one of our nightly panel sessions titled BOA and the Death of Buckles 2324 Ski Boot Design? And really, who better to address some of these questions and discuss several other important aspects of ski boots than a full panel session of boot designers and, well, the one and only Hoji? Sitting in on this panel was Tom Petrowski from K2, Christoph Lentz from Fisher, Ricardo Bonatai from Dalbello, and Ross Hare from Dinafit. And like I mentioned, the pro skier, designer, and obsessive tinkerer, Hoji. You'll find that these guys all have excellent points and a ton of experience, though they're not always in agreement, which makes for a very interesting conversation. And if you'd like to watch this conversation and all the videos from last year's Blister Summit, including the panel sessions and the brand lineup videos, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. The link is in the show notes. But speaking of the Blister Summit, we would love to have you join us at Blister Summit 2024. Not only will there be tons of great brands in attendance, some amazing athletes joining us like Cody Townsend and Angel Collinson, but where else can you test out a bunch of ski boots on resort and in the backcountry? Come test some BOA boots for yourself and see what you think. And of course, there are amazing opportunities to actually get out in the backcountry and test boots, skis, skins, and more. This year, we are super excited to announce the Blister Summit Backcountry Program is brought to you by Bag Balm. The Backcountry Program allows Summit attendees to go on guided backcountry tours with professional local guides. Each tour is approximately three to four hours long, and groups are separated based on backcountry experience, speed, and skill level. So we are inviting everyone from Never Evers to experienced backcountry skiers and riders to join us on the tours. You get to test the latest backcountry products from brands like Ordevox, BCA, Forefront, Dinafit, Wonder Alpine, and many more. And that's a pretty unique opportunity to actually be able to take stuff into the backcountry and test it. So that in and of itself is worth it. And while you're out there, don't forget to bring along some bag balm to help soothe chapped lips, dry skin, chafing, and more. I know I am someone who chronically deals with chapped lips, nose, and hands, especially in the winter and in dry climates like right here in the Gunnison Valley, or like last winter when I had the rare opportunity to go ski on the windiest, driest, and highest continent on Earth, Antarctica. Thankfully for that trip, I had brought along some bag balm and I was using it on repeat to help soothe cracked nose and lips. It was amazing and provided some great relief. And then of course, I'm still using it on the daily here to also moisturize and soothe in the cold winds and dry air of the Gunnison Valley. For me, it's certainly a must have for climates that range from Antarctica to right here at home. And it's always worth having a bit of bag balm in your backpack for some of those epic adventures out in the elements. So please join us at Blister Summit 2024 happening February 4th through the 8th right here in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado. You can register today via our website or the link in the show notes. And with that, let's listen to boot designers hash it out and discuss many important aspects of ski boots coming in the 23-24 season. We have just wrapped up our third day on snow here at the Blister Summit. Um, skied somewhere in the vicinity of 7 to 12 inches of fresh today. Uh, you're welcome. It's very considerate of us that we just keep bringing fresh snow in for you for the Blister Summit because we are great hosts. Uh, so um, I had a heck of a fun day um, skiing with a whole bunch of different people. I hope you all did as well. Um, both get on some interesting new product and get to go ski with some interesting people. Um, I sure did. And uh, that was a really, really good day out there. So uh, now. Time for another panel session, this one on ski boot design. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this panel because you may have heard uh, recently 
there are some new innovations in the boot world that have made quite a splash, but these aren't the only things happening in the boot world. And so I think what we're going to do tonight is talk uh, with each of the individuals from, we have several different brands up here. They will be introducing themselves, talk a bit about some of the new things that they are doing uh, as brands, and then just open this up to a free for all. And hopefully somebody ends up throwing haymakers at some point. So um, to that end, Tom Petrowski, tell us a little bit about yourself, your position and what's going on with K2 ski boots at the moment. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, Tom Petrowski, I'm the global product line manager for ski boots at K2. Um, been in the position in America now about three years. And yeah, we've got BOA, which I'm sure all of you guys have seen outside there. Most of you had a little click on it. Nobody seems to be able to walk past without clicking it. Um, it's the big thing for us this year. Uh, we have all the other boots are still there, but BOA, we are really excited for. We genuinely believe it's a step forward in how the boot fits, what we can do with the boots. So we're really excited for what we can do in the future with it. Tell us a little bit about this new BOA system. What kind of boots are these on? <clears throat> yeah. So from us, uh, we have it on our Recon and Anthem, which is our fixed cuff or mountain boot. Uh, we have it from a 130 flex down to 110 for men, 115 down to 95 for women. But we also have it on our free ride boots, which is... 50-50 boot, resort boot, bit of a touring boot, the one mode on the back. So I really push for us to have it in both categories. As I alluded to, I really do believe BOA adds something good to a ski boot in terms of the fit. So I wanted to offer it in our two kind of biggest lines. So yeah, fixed cuff and free ride for us. Yeah. Uh, my name is Christoph. I'm from Fisher. I'm the global product manager for Alpine Ski Boots. I'm based in Upper Austria um, and spent a lot of time in Montepaluna, Italy, where we do the development. Um, for the coming season, 23-24 for Fisher, I'd say big story is performance. Um, just really across the board, bringing performance boots um, in an area where we've kind of lacked. Uh, in a part of that, we also have BOA. Um, and for us, BOA was uh, in line with this performance goal to bring boots that ski well, ski better as past Fisher boots, um, ski better as than the, the bench line on the market um, to help everybody get better at skiing, to help good skiers have an even better day out there. Um, so BOA was one technology aspect that we brought in to bring more performance. Um, and the second thing was uh, collaboration with ZipFit. Um, also in the interest of performance. So I think to keep the answer short, uh, Fisher is bringing high performance boots here. And just say a bit about the model, a bit more about the model, low volume, mid volume, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, where we have the BOA featured is a mid volume boot. Uh, we have the ZipFit featured in a low volume and a mid volume BOA boot. Um, but even the HV high volume boots that we rebranded, updated this year, um, had some changes made with an emphasis on more performance. Okay. Hello, everybody. I'm Riccardo Bonaiti. I come from Italy. I work as product line manager in Dalbello. Dalbello is situated next to Montebelluna in Aslo, a few minutes away. And uh, we have a pretty wide collection, but the bigger news from this year are a new line of a three-piece boot called Cabrio. That is substantially substituting the former Krypton and Lupo, uh, Krypton and Chakra, and Cabrio Free that is substituting the former Lupo. These are the biggest news from this year and also Quantum Free. Can you tell us a bit about the differences then? Yes. Uh, Cabrio, about Cabrio, yep. Cabrio Free or, or Quantum? Go both. <laughs> okay. So substantially, Cabrio is a pure free ride line uh, and is developed for performance in downhill. It's a low volume line, so 99 millimeter last. Cabrio Free is based on the same platform, is 99 millimeter last, but has the capability of walking. We have DynaFit inserts and ski walk mechanism. Then uh, Quantum Free instead is a different concept of touring. We are on 1.3 kilogram ski boot, so main focus on the uphill. And here we have the news is on the liner. We have developed a new liner towards sustainability with sustainable materials. Great. 
Ross. Yeah, uh, Ross Her. I'm the director of sales and marketing for the Oberop North America group. Uh, Oberop North America is the owning group of Dinafit. Uh, and yeah, we're most talking about the Tigard boot collection here at this event. It's a boot that we just launched just last week. It's a four buckle kind of Alpine hybrid freeride boot. Uh, for us, it's sort of a a throwback to Franz Klammer era of Dinafit ski boots, uh, where performance downhill skiing was the inspiration and then you know for sure we're a touring brand so we're trying to to balance that heritage of downhill performance and our touring knowledge that we've kind of built out today we're you know really really proud of our the mechanism that connects the cuff and the shell came from you know the passion of a certain individual that you know is pretty obsessed with nuanced ways to make your day really really good in the backcountry make your transitions a little easier and then you know like kind of finding that balance of downhill ski performance that still rock walks really well and is compatible with all the different bindings today hey what's up hey. what's up <laughs> what's up bro um three yeah i don't i don't how do you how do you follow this up you like snuck onto this panel so yeah. what how would you talk what do you what, what should you say right now <clears throat> um hoji I'm just like everyone else. Put one boot on at a time. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then rarely take them off. Yeah. Um Okay. Uh one thing you may have noticed uh that uh among the speakers here is there was a lot of talk about high performance. There was zero talk about weight savings. Um, yeah. Um, so you said it was Hoji. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this a little bit because, um, you know, in pretty recent history in the ski boot world, we were not hearing so much about high performance. We were hearing more about, look at how light we just made everything. And yes, of course, there are compromises and trade-offs here. Sometimes lightweight things can be absolutely the right tool for the job. Hoji, where are you at personally these days in terms of that push for performance, but also an interest in saving weight on your gear and specifically ski boots? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh we kind of had a where we've witnessed like a bit of a backlash, uh, especially in these this kind of hybrid category of downhill performance-driven ski boots that you can go ski touring in, and and there was a bit of a push for oh the lightest one, the lightest one, the lightest one for the the previous years here, and the easy uh, one of the the ways to really save weight is obviously the liner the shells are the shells there's different materials wall thickness and such but if you want to achieve like a a decent amount of downhill performance you have to build a structure and you can't you can't reduce that down to you, you can only do it, take it so far but the liner can be you can save hundreds of grams on and on and on but like suddenly i think we had a lot of products that the shell was one thing and the liner was not really fitting into that shell for what it was intended to. And it was just trying to reach this fantasy number that, okay, that's nice. But like, I think, I think the trend like was too far in the direction of like the lightest possible best skiing boot. And what we're seeing now is, the the weight isn't as important and it's more about having a, a liner that per, that also matches the performance of the shell i'd like to ask you for how much of this was driven by consumer feedback versus just within your respective companies uh the thought of you know, internally thinking, hey, we may have, we kind of went to see how far we could go. We maybe need to come back from the edge. Ross? Yeah. Um, I think for us, our boot program, I'd put a lot of weight behind like the company culture that we have right now. 
I mean, the way we work together, like you could consider me a little more corporate than Hoji, probably, you know, you don't like, say, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so, um, I'm, you know, my role, like a sales guy, I shouldn't be on this panel, right? I'm not here to sell anyone anything, but our culture and our group has sort of supported the right people, the right ideas, the conduit to feedback and how you can get that feedback to the right people in the team that are going to build the products for us. And so I think we've kind of built, call it coalition within our team. Um, you know, so it's like Fritz, Hoji and I sort of sitting together, hearing feedback coming to events like this knowing kind of what is the problem that we need to solve? How do we really address that? What are we hearing the most? Um, you know, like, what does Hoji want to want himself? Like, what does Fritz know from his time? And then like, you know, for me, I have the, the pipeline of, of sales numbers. Sure. Like, you know, at the end of the day, consumers make decisions with their dollars and how they buy things. But are they always perfectly happy with that decision? Can we do better? Like, what are we really hearing? And, and so the three of us together have kind of built this coalition. We spend a lot of time in Europe. You know, we spend a lot of time kind of conveying that message to our team so that everyone comes on board with like, what are we really trying to accomplish? What are we tr really trying to solve? And what are we hearing? And trying to be as maybe humble about that because it's not always what you want to hear. Um, yeah. And I guess on the subject of, of weight, yeah, for sure. Like, I don't know if this is the heaviest boot we've ever come out with. I don't think it is. Um, but it's certainly a category for us as a touring brand that's for sure spent a lot of time building things super lightweight. We build a lot of lightweight product. It was clear that in this category to, to be relevant, to do something unique, like weight wasn't the first problem we needed to solve here. We needed to solve something that was, you know, for comfort for sure. Um, but ski performance, like if you're out there today, it was good snow. If you're wasting any time, mm. like, Waste, wasting time on a powder day is the worst feeling ever, right? And so, you know, having a simple mechanism that you can count on that works really well, that you can, you know, do your transition. Because even on the resort, you're still doing transitions, right? Like you're hopping on the T bar, you're hopping on the chairlift, you're going in and out. Like, you know, transitions matter, even if you're not a schema racer. So, keeping all that simple and clean and, and listening to what people need. Yeah, I'd say like the culture that we've built, I think, has been pretty good to address that. Ricardo? Well, uh, as Dalbello, actually, we are pretty new in the classic lightweight touring world. Yeah. We stepped inside just four, four years ago, four seasons ago, with the Quantum line. And uh, let's say that we have targeted a completely different consumer because as Dalbello, we used to have Lupo line that was capable of going uphill, but we are talking about a 1.8 kilogram boot. So we are talking about performance on the downhill. So for us, this was a first step in this category. And actually we have been, let's say, pretty successful. We can say it and as a first try in that category. And uh, let's say that when we talk about this development, uh, we have worked with some Alpine guides with feedback from the market. We obviously looked a lot to our competitors because they, have, they were already doing it. So you learn from the best. And that's how Quantum was born. Now that there is also Cabrio that is substituting the previous Lupo line, Cabrio 3. And here we are, uh, we have targeted a lower weight, but uh, we ha haven't gone to 1.4 kilograms or 1.5 because at the end, when you are talking about this kind of athletes and user, they are still looking for a certain type of stability. So if you want that performance, you can't go too low with the weight of Mm -hmm. So we are lighter, but not that lighter. Kristoff, mm -hmm. what's the conversation like at Fisher on these things? And I, I mean, Fisher's not the only brand, but with a strong history in cross country in particular, I was curious how much that might push, you know, the manufacturing of ski boots toward that lighter end of the spectrum, just given the heritage of the company. Yeah. Um, I mean, for Fisher, the mission statement of the entire company, including Alpine and Nordic Division, is to be the athlete's number one choice. And depending on how you define athlete there, that could be an intermediate beginner skier, that could be a World Cup racer, and that spans both disciplines. Um, I think the original question, which had to do about weight, 
was kind of about how do we decide if weight is important or not. For us, it's uh, a question keeping in mind that we want to be the athlete's number one choice or we want to develop, develop those kind of products um, is to decide what is what are we talking about? Um, the right tool for the right job. We have two successful touring boots in our collection, the Traverse and the Transalp, um, one under a thousand grams and one right around 1300 grams. Um, for both of those developments, weight was critical. Um, for what we're presenting now and where we really have our focus on now, RC4, performance, peace, weight was not in the discussion because that was, this is not necessary for what that product needed to do. Um, we listened to the consumers and yeah, we've also more than listening, basically tested and realized that in a performance product, saving weight is not helping us get there. Um, as a final point on weight, uh, for me, it's very easy for an end consumer, for a dealer, for a buyer to compare weights. They're listed in the catalog. Every one of us makes boots with a weight listed and you can just compare. But it misses some of the, the essence of the product. Um, 100 grams sounds like a lot. But for example, what does a roll of toilet paper weigh? For the record, it's about 120 to 130 grams. Hmm. If I told you, put this roll of toilet paper in your backpack and you're going to ski better, you'd probably do it. You wouldn't think twice about that extra weight. But when you see it listed on the, on the sheets or on the websites or even in the blister reviews, oh my God, that's 100 grams more. But like, yeah, performance, it doesn't need weight in certain categories. More of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, how is K2 thinking about weight these days and how much of that is informed by specifically consumer feedback? Yeah, consumer feedback is an interesting one because <clears throat> nobody's telling us to make heavier boots, really. You are, but okay. you're obviously a very different consumer than okay. most actual skiers. And you're also in a very different product. You're riding a Redster CS. Now, I would argue, yeah. When you're in that super high level boot, then weight really isn't a consideration. Now, for the everyday, maybe five days a year yeah. skier, yep. they actually do want a lightweight boot. It does make a difference on the bench. But we, every boot we've made for 23 compared to 22 has got heavier. We were at the bottom in terms of weight. I think reading your reviews, our recons are basically down there anyway. Yeah. So we've had room to play with. We as well want to make a better performing boot. and ways to do that is often to add weight. It's usually not to pull weight out of it. So everything we've done is actually adding weight to things, but we are cognizant of it. We don't want to take like a 1650 gram boot and make it over two kilograms because it's going to vastly affect yeah. it. And like our BFC is a really good example. We had the original BFC and it fit really well. The fit was good, but it was quite a heavy boot. We updated it a couple of years back kept the fit identical, but we saved around 20% weight and it's doubled the sales. So weight does matter to the average consumer, but it doesn't matter to some consumers, yourself included. But for the average, weight is still a factor, but it's not. we're not trying to pull every gram out of it. I think most bands, we were racing to the bottom. We reached that bottom and now we're coming back up. and We're, we're in a happy medium of that kind of 1,800 gram. Um. I think we should talk about BOA some more. Um, we did a, a thing we call Blister Happy Hour. It's a live stream thing that Blister members can jump in on. And honestly, I, I, I have said, I think that was probably going to be one of the most important boot conversations that like happens this year. Um, and uh, so Blister members, go. you can find that on the blister member clubhouse and you can uh, check out a video of that conversation we had. Um, here's my question. Um, I want to go to Dina fit and doll Bello on this. Um, there's been so much talk about Boa. You Ross and Ricardo have had a chance to check this out. Is there a philosophical opposition to moving to a, this new Boa system that does add weight to a boot? And I would like to see if anybody wants to 
you know, do a sort of defense of the traditional buckle. Ross? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd go back to our idea of like coalition within our team, you know, you know, I say myself, Fritz, Hoji, we're called the voice of North America within our team, you know, and then we have some really strong colleagues in Austria and Italy and all over the world. And, um, you know, our like colleagues in Scandinavia, you know, maybe agree with us a little bit more than the Italian team. And, you know, that, that argument, that ability to converse about like what we want for our consumer, right. Is, is really, really productive. What we're not hearing from our athlete team, which is, is a huge piece of our company. Um, you know, like how we support our athletes and what they want to pursue and what we want to do. We're not hearing, Hey, I really wish we had a boa on our ski boot. Yeah. Like we're, we're not hearing that, you know, we're wanting something really reliable, something really simple, something, you know, that solves a problem that I'm experiencing right now, you know, and we hear that, like we evolve through problems, right? Most of my email, most of my text messages from our athletes and from our team, it's not just high fives and how great everything is every day, right? It's like, hey, I broke this thing and my day wasn't so good because of it. Hey, I was out doing this other thing and this thing didn't work. And like, those are the problems we're really trying to solve and trying to find a simple way that we can deliver to that feedback. And, you know, like if if we're not listening to that, to the point of consumer feedback and all that, like, then we won't be relevant and we won't have super long-standing relationships with our athletes if we don't. So on the topic of BOA, we, we do use like a ratchet dial system on some of our boots. Yeah. Um, we're using it in a very, very different way though. Like our, our ratchet dial doesn't ask, like we're, we're not asking the ratchet dial to deform the shell of our ski boot. We're, we're using this ratchet dial to move componentry onto your foot and hold you in a secure way in a different way with a different dial, you know, and it's a, it's just a, it's just a different program, you know, and, and we think we're solving just for a different problem than, than shell management and shell volume management. Um, cause that's a, that's a big ask to ask something to like take this piece of plastic and wrap it around your foot and hold everything super securely. So we try and like ask a little less of our system to, to solve just one problem at a time. Ricardo. <laughs> Well, in Dalbello right now, we are, don't love or hate the boa as them. Uh, we, we already had it in the collection, not the boa, but a, a rotor mechanism on the quantum line, but it was on touring and we are talking about a 900 grams. Uh, right now, uh, on the market, uh, we, ha- we have actually the same uh, feedback from our athletes. So they look at it, but they are not maybe super enthusiastic. Maybe they are a little bit diffident because they don't know them. They have their concernings uh, on how it works and how it closer close around the, the foot. I have to say that I have the occasion to ski on the K2 on the um, and on the Salomon ski boot with the boa, and for sure uh, it wraps in properly the foot. It is a good sensation, but uh, um, and we see an opportunity probably in some segment of the market, some kind of consumer that may likes it. But there's also true that there are also a part of the market that may not likes it. Uh, because you don't have the, the possibility to completely change, to, to, to adjust the four, the forefoot closure and the instep closure differently. So let's say that for sure it's interesting. Uh, it looks like it's working well. But uh, I think that uh, is at the moment it lays in a part of the market. We will have to see. Probably the market would tell us mm-hmm. if everybody wants it or if it's a yes or a no. This is what how we are looking at it right now. Yeah. Um, care to respond, uh, people with you know boa ski boots, Christoph? Um, boa works. It has a function. It's not a gimmick. Uh, the system that the colleagues at BOA have developed and been working on for the last five years uh, meets the requirements that many of us brands had set for them as years ago they started um, developing this. We were not inclined to adopt it. It costs more than a set of buckles for us. Um, It looks different. We knew it would polarize. Um, and we, we did not commit to it right away. We tested for 
over a year on old boots, um, even built a prototype mold to start trying to integrate this. Um, and the feedback just keeps coming positive that it works. Um, concerns about durability are laid to rest um, and that it, it improves the boot. Um, and coming back to kind of the Fisher view on it, performance, it increased the performance of the boot. So we didn't want to, but our, it, it worked. <laughs> it works. <laughs> and it, it makes the boot better. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <clears throat> if we're going to put out something new, it's going to be better than what was there before. And we genuinely believe Boa offers that. Um, a lot of you guys have skied it this time. None of you have really come back and said you don't like the system. It does work. Um, it wraps the foot in a new way. It's much more comfortable. I've had people here who've had loads of work done to their boots. They've tried ours on out of the box and it feels as good. So there's something the BOA offers that a buckle boot can't. It does work. It makes our boots better. As Krasnoff said, it's more expensive. It's heavier. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't be better, but it is. The grand scheme of things, it is just better than buckles. Um, so we're confident that moving forward with it, we're offering a better product than we could offer if we kept with buckles. Hmm. But Christoph. And Tom, you would agree the market will dictate and decide. Yeah. You're comfortable on that. Yes. I mean, yeah. Completely. Okay. I mean, I think up to that point, we, when we started the development on the new RC4 MV boots, um, I think we were the only brand. Solomon did it differently. K2 did it differently. We actually invested upfront into the new concept and in a way and the tooling to make it with BOA and to make it with buckles. And I can tell you, if we had to make that decision today, we wouldn't have invested in the buckle boot. A year and a half ago, we weren't as confident that it would receive, would be received as well. And yeah, we have grown to accept it even more. Yeah, we didn't develop a buckle version of it. We did just go with BOA. But even in our forecasting early on, we got it completely wrong. Because we were like, this is a new technology. We, we did believe in it, but we believe the retailers and consumers may be slower to adopt. So when we did our initial forecast, we were still very much, Buckles is still going to be by far the biggest one and Bo is just going to supplement it. That's not the case. When we've got done the selling, it's completely the opposite. We're barely selling any Buckle boots anymore. It's Boa. Let's talk walk modes. Um, walk modes are not like in this year. That's not the sexy conversation at the moment. Um, where in past years, it absolutely has been the conversation. Um, Hoji, you spending any more time thinking about walk modes or are you kind of over that? Uh, he got, he got actually mad at me for that question. Did you see the, like, he like <laughs> scoffed. No, I just woke up. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in a way, everyone's kind of trying to get somewhere with with walking and skiing performance compromise blend optimization and uh i spent a lot of energy in the last couple years just trying to optimize the the system that i've been involved with and that's that's coming down that's 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 a few years from now i guess uh probably but uh, I think I think there's there's still a lot of room to improve, and I mean the 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 things that we see right now, they're they're working pretty all right. Um, everyone's got got their own take on it, but the principles are are pretty like the basic design is is almost the same. Um, and there's still a lot of issues with durability that's like the biggest thing that i've learned like dealing with uh one of the things that's that i i try to do is wherever i go wherever i'm skiing whatever opportunity through these kind of you know traveling opportunities is to like talk to to the the shops the managers the the, the people are really dealing with the customer and uh what's coming back what do they have to fix? And that that's a big part of it. Like a, if you can make something that's not breaking, 
I mean, a lot of the people I know uh, at a high level of downhill focused skiing, they're just deleting lines because they're sick of <laughs> things breaking. So I think ultimately in the end, like the focus should be on creating something that doesn't break. Hmm. And uh, we still have some work to do. Quick sort of show of hands on that. As all of you are dealing with and thinking about walk modes, do you agree with Hoji that the single biggest issue with walk modes right now is durability? Is No. No. I don't, but... Ricardo, where are you at? No, me too. I feel I don't agree too much. That okay. The main problem is durability. Tom? I don't know, but durability is a big factor, certainly. Um, okay. Yeah. So you might agree with Hoji. I somewhat okay. agree with Hoji. We like fights I, mean, here. I, I ski around with a bag of screws and a bunch of tools, and I'm on my hands and knees on top of mountains fixing boots all the time. So that's, that's that. kind of... <laughs> I, I already fixed a couple here, and like it's going to continue. So huh. that's it's, it's the reality that I see. Like It's not... I'm not going to candy coat it. It's just yeah. how it is. Like if you're actually out there in the mountains, things are breaking all the time. Okay. So Ricardo or Christoph, what, what do you, what are you currently identifying at Dalbello or Fisher in terms of the. Um, I, for me, I think durability is, is impacted by having a walk mode, but it is a piece that can fail. There's more bits that can fail, but I think the biggest downside for me is the lack of performance the fact that as soon as you build that into a boot um you're making a compromise compared to a standard two buckle or four buckle overlap or overlap let's say some more four buckles where you have a rivet um screws two pieces of plastic where you're really like that standard um flex point and what makes a overlap boot and overlap boot as soon as you put a walk mode in that area and allow the boot to open to the back you've compromised the integrity the stiffness the tolerance in that entire cuff and that for me is the biggest downside which is where i agree with hoji in terms of people who are really performance oriented and i think in this room we talked to a lot of those that consider deleting the walk mode it is a compromise and if your goal is to go far, to go high, to go um, flat, <laughs> traverse, and you really need that long stride, there are great, lightweight, really walkable boots. But performance-wise, there's it's not it's a compromise. I agree with Christoph. I mean, for sure, durability is very, very important because when you add a piece to something, you add something that can break. But the main downside is on the performance because in the moment in which you want something to work, you're changing the interface between the cuff and the shell because if you don't change it, it's not working. And in the moment in which you are changing it, you are creating more space, you are changing it, and so the connection is different. And usually you lose a little bit of power and a little bit of power transmission, yes. So totally agree with what you have just said. Ross? Yeah. I guess I, I like... If that was, if this idea of this monster sacrifice we were all making because our boots can walk, we'd all be riding single speed rigid bikes in the mountains every day because we'd be unwilling to trust suspension and derailers and all these other pieces of componentry that make our day significantly better. You know, like, yeah, you could blow your derailleur off your mountain bike if you take a wrong turn and you don't take care of it or whatever that is. But I think. I would guess the vast majority of this room has derailers on their mountain bike and they're, they're up for that performance that they get from it and that experience that they get from it, you know? And I think, I, I guess I don't think, I, I think there's a great opportunity to improve in that space. And I, I think that's like, that's been our focus is that experience, you know, like Dean, if it's a touring brand, you know, that has Alpine experience and today we're, we trust in what we built so much <clears throat> that we want to push it back into, you know, a bigger space than where we've been in the past, you know, because in the past you, we, we felt like we developed this really cool thing that only solved this problem for the ski touring person that wanted the most efficient day, you know, and, and I think probably the derailleur was invented for that person that wanted to go faster, you know, on, 
you know, their road bike probably. And then they found out that has this huge benefit to the mountain biker too. And I think walk mechanisms have a huge benefit to alpine skiers, you know, for comfort and all sorts of other reasons. And I think, I think to like, to say that walk mechanisms just delete them because I'm not into investing more money and trying to figure it out and how to solve this problem. I think that's unfair to the experience of ski touring and skiing in general. You know, I mean, like I'm a skier before I was a ski tour. And, and I think that obsession with, you know, finding that balance, finding like a thing that skis super good comes out in that. I mean, but I mean, like our, like our mechanism is not perfect. Right. And I think that's what Hoji was speaking to. Like you solve one problem and you find two more, like mm-hmm. that's life. But we're trying to make it better each season, you know, and, and we come here because mm-hmm. we think that, Hey, yeah. With well, the first time you hop into our boot, we're going to have to show you, Hey, how does this, the Hoji lock work? You know, like you got to buckle your boot in a different order and you got to learn a couple different things. But hey, when you hop on your mountain bike, you got to be in the right gear when you get to that hill. And if you just grab five gears before the transition of your next, you know, from down to up, you're going to jam it up and it might break. So I think the consumer is up to learn to have a better day. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would I would never delete my walk modes. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. I'm just saying that that shows some of the some of the problems out there and like i mean i dedicated uh eight years of my life to trying to achieve a way to improve the situation and um you know the what we have today is is quite reliable and it's working in a much different way than the traditional one and the the motivation of from the beginning of my journey with working on walk mechanism was because I didn't like what the the standard was mm. and I wanted to achieve something that provided a, my focus was skiing performance. Mm. And I think we've, we've done the work and the, we've done a good job and like, it's not perfect of course, but like it is working in a different way than what the standard walk mechanism is and trying to remove the problems of, the flex issues, the play and the breakages because you're holding something in a, in a awkward geometry that amplifies force in a bad way. And it's not to say that it's the best ever, but, uh, that's been like my main motivation from the beginning. Uh, and it wasn't coming from ski touring. I just wanted to be able to stand up straight and not freeze my feet at the very, very beginning. Because that, that my job was to be in the mountains for ten to twelve hours a day and ski for about thirty five seconds. <laughs> Fair. So, the other day, we had what I thought was an extremely interesting panel session uh, talking about bindings, um, and we were talking about specifically um, tech toes, pin bindings, this interface tiny little tolerances that need to be tiny. Uh, We've got a bunch of boot product managers up here. I would be very interested to hear your thoughts, whether you think that Lars and Hoji and Garai were overstating the problem there with the interface uh, with tech bindings, pin toes, etc. So, um, what what were your thoughts? I thought that was really interesting, man. I, I think it was Lars was saying how <clears throat> he would like like a ball and socket instead, and completely we'd love that. Like we build our recon team boots with just a tech toe because we know the way people ski now is differently. They're using shifts, they're using cast bindings to get up there. It'd be awesome if we could do that. I would do that tomorrow. The problem would be I'd add it onto the boot and it would only work with cast because and then it wouldn't sell because people would have other bindings. So it need, and it's the same you were talking about this with Alpine bindings as well. And I kept thinking to myself, everybody kicked off when we put grip walk soles on because they didn't work with old bindings. It's like, it would be awesome to update things so that they work. But unless somehow every piece of gear suddenly burst into flames and was eradicated and everybody started again, we can't do it without people complaining. So it's a two-way sword. We'd love to innovate. But then people will tell us, oh, it doesn't work with the old gear that you've sold for years. So mm. it's a double-edged sword, really. Like 
it's so hard. Like we'd love to do it, but you'll complain. Is that the answer, or does, does anybody have anything to add to that? I think from our side, well, the, most of the boots in the industry that have a tech insert are being purchased from DinaFit. So mm-hmm. the compatibility side on our side for tech inserts is over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like if a boot has a DinaFit certified insert, it's not just like a piece of metal that we ship to someone else's factory and say, hey, good luck with that. You know, like people like it, you know. It's it comes with the experience of how do you make this thing work in your molds? How do you reach the tolerances? How can everything work and be reliable? And then how can we communicate outwardly to not just DinaFit bindings, but other bindings of like, hey, like this is a standard. Try and ask questions about it, you know, orange sticker on your boot so that you ask a question. Hey, like, will this work with my binding? I see the sticker, you know, like conversation is huge. Education is huge, you know. I think to the point of, yeah, I mean, I mean, that was a really interesting conversation the other day about bindings and tolerances. I mean, tolerances are important in all of our lives and everything, like taking care of your gear, asking questions. If you hop into something really high end, like, you know, I guess I'll use a mountain bike analogy again. Like if you're going to buy a really sweet new mountain bike, you're going to learn all the componentry of it. You know, like you're going to ask the questions of how do I make myself safe while using this? What are the limitations of this thing? You know, and I think the ski industry just didn't have this huge disruption for a long time. So people didn't ask questions. They just assumed every boot and every binding and every ski would work yeah. like perfectly. Yeah. But now the consumer is wanting to do more things. They want to go on longer walks than they've ever been on. They want to ski at the resort harder than they've ever skied yeah. on. And so... You can't expect like everything just is perfectly the same as it was. I feel like I disagree with like the conversation the other day a little bit more because I feel like the industry is working to make tolerances pretty darn good, you know? Um, but there's this huge education component, you know, of like what there, there's just a lot of categories, a lot of asks, a lot of different pieces now. Yeah. Ricardo, any thoughts on tolerances and compatibility with? pin toes and tech bindings or is there a stance at Dalbello on these things? Uh, luckily in Dalbello, uh, as you know, we are part of a group yeah. and we have Marker and thankfully Marker is one of the leader in the, in the bindings and let's say that they solve our issues. I mean, when we are making new products and we're using Pintex, we are sending it to them and they are testing with all their bindings and all the bindings of the competitors and are giving us the report on what was working or what was not working. Thanks to them, we are usually okay with every bindings, but this is because they are working with us. It is because Marker is working yeah, with you, yeah, but I mean, you said usually you're okay with the <laughs> other. That seems a bit... Some, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, four years ago, first molding, uh, of, uh, of the quantum, uh, we, we shipped them the first one in Pittsburgh. They tested it and we discovered that we were one millimeter higher on the, on the plastic on the toe. So substantially when going full forward, the toe was touching uh, the binding and it was opening it. So immediately we just, we lowered of one millimeter the toe of the ski boots and it was fine. That's, that's, what, that's what I mean with usually. Gotcha. <laughs> Thanks to them, we can correct this, this, yeah. this little problems. So the question is, is there a conversation going on among the brands collectively to get to sort of dial in the uniformity uh, when it comes to grip walk? Yes. There is, the physical, there is a physical mission in which all brand participates. I'm not part of it, so I can't give you many information about it, but there is a physical mission and they are agreed with all the brands on the norm. And the, the new norm is ISO 23223. It has been introduced two years ago, if I'm not wrong, or one year ago. One, one and a half years. Uh, one and a half year ago. And yes, there is collaboration on this. Absolutely. And how much do you all like what this new certification are are you like this is bullseye or it is just definitely an improvement and 
for anybody that's never read an ISO norm before, <laughs> they're incredibly detailed. And I mean, the ISO 23223, which is the new ISO normative that um, replaces basically Gripwalk or mm -hmm. is Gripwalk. They took the standard from the Gripwalk full and made it an ISO normative. It is super duper detailed with tolerances and exact durometers and everything you wouldn't even think to test. Um, this is definitely like nitty gritty R&D work that um, is a checklist. We have tooling made that's uh, it's a process. For me, the fact that it's been normed under this ISO norm is good news for the industry. It means everything is under one norm. Previously, everything was being sent to Pensbag, to Marker, to actually check to say, can we accept this as a grip walk sole and does it fit, match the, the marker standards? So I think in that sense, it's going. Uh, the FASI working group is definitely a place where the discussion happens um, on a very technical level, as I understand. Um, but I think the there's no I, I'm not I'm not aware. It's an interesting point that you bring up because I have never measured where the where the point is across different brands. That's something only you would say. I guess I would add like this is our first boot with a grip box sole to it. Um, you know, when we wrote the brief and we first started working on it. We weren't sure where we what we were going to do. You know, we were like the walk drives nine five two three. Do you know? Do we do a rubber sole? Can we? You know, what's the norm going to do? We didn't know at that point when we started the tie guard boot development, which is our first boot that we need. You know, in terms of like satisfying what was asked of us of this. I just hit the table. Yes. So, but you know, so it was a big learning for us where we had to like really look at it, and it's. I mean, I wouldn't say it was like betting on the right horse, but we were like pretty sure, okay, I think Gripwalk has it to make it to the standard, you know? And, and so that's why we made that investment there. So not so dissimilar, you know, when we give another brand our inserts where we say, hey, like this is the normative rules that we've created around inserts and placements and how to like control it. We got the same thing reversed for walk to ride or Gripwalk. Sorry. So... Like you, like, you know, you look at all of them and, and you follow that place. Is it restrictive in some ways? Sure. Because we can't use quick step inserts in our boots with this. And I can tell you like from de like developing a boot with a quick step insert, stepping in and, and being at a demo, like stepping into inserts is not the easiest thing. Right. So we developed this really cool quick step. It makes it easier, but we can't put a quick step insert and follow the grip walk normative, you know? And so there's like, okay, well, we could build a better product maybe for, you know, stepping in, but we might not perfectly hit the way the rules are normed. So, so when I said, I think like the industry at large is doing a good job to improve on norms, like that's a big step, you know, everyone being on board to measure this stuff out, communicate back and forth for that to solve that problem. Absolutely. Because in the beginning of the influx of touring boots with inserts and tech bindings and all that, you know, you'd see, hey, like this didn't work correctly in this scenario. And the first thing you'd blame would be the binding. But then, you know, we would look at it and say, I'm already in now, so I can touch the table all I want. But um, so like, yeah, like, hey, was the boot within the norms of, you know, what we expected at the beginning too. So I think it's, it's a, there's progress being made and I think it will get better. So the question is, we actually only talk about the last or width of a ski boot at the forefoot. We never talk about the width of a heel pocket, which is arguably way more important to get a dialed in heel pocket because you can punch out a forefoot of a boot. Why is this? There's a few elements. It's not just heel. It's ankle. There's a things to the ins that will make a big difference as well and i guess just like to say that's how we've always done it is a bad answer but yeah. it is how we've always done it and it probably does make us come back to boa but boa a big thing now is getting the heel right is so important because the forefoot does have some adjustability to it so i'm very much of the opinion that you get the heel well, with any boot you get the heel right first you can make the forefoot work yeah but restarting it and saying, oh, this is, I don't know how many millimeters off the top of my head it would be, but whatever it is, it's just another number to know 
And I would hope a lot of people will go to a boot fitter and they'll just work to find a heel pocket that will work. I don't think putting a number on it would help many people, especially a consumer who doesn't understand 100 millimeter anyway. There's no way they're going to understand a heel measurement. Mm. So it would be nice, but I don't think, unfortunately, long term, it would help a great deal. But in terms of tips for people that are just trying to get a ski boot that works for them, I mean, one of the things I think we can say right now is focus on that heel pocket. Think about the heel. Mm -hmm. And if if the heel feels really good and snug and the forefront feels too snug, well, actually, you should probably buy that boot. But if it's still too snug at the forefoot, you can punch that part out. Mm -hmm. And that is not information that maybe a whole lot of skiers are thinking about right now. So that would be a very useful thing to start drilling in a bit. Maybe like right now, we all in agreement with that? Absolutely. I think your old and your pocket is, is critical. Not Hoji. You disagree? No, I mean, I agree 100%, but I think <clears throat> depending on where you're at on the world, like boot punching is, this is something that doesn't even exist. You know, like this is a very, not prosumer, but it's, it's not something that's always available or people, I mean, even moldable liners is hard for people mm-hmm. to understand or deal with. So, um, yeah, I agree. Like the, the heel area of the boot and the cockpit around your ankle and that kind of security, like I, I would have boots with no toes cover that that would be perfect for I, I don't need my toes to be crammed in like anymore. Like Flintstones? Yeah, yeah, like, Flintstone yeah. boots. Like, that would be the, my dream, actually. Because uh, I don't need that. But, yeah, the the last sweat thing, I just laugh about it constantly. Everyone's always asking, like, I don't know. Just look at it. What do you think? Like, I, I won't remember these numbers because they mean nothing to me because it's a measurement arbitrarily somewhere in the front of the boot and the like it could be anything like I just look, but I'm you, that's like what I've been focused on is looking at the boot and trying to understand what shape it is. Uh, but it gets very confusing, uh, very quickly. And if you started adding more numbers, like we already have like the flex index, which I call like you pretty much, it's like comparable to like, how much do you love me? You know, like it means nothing. Actually, there's no empirical evidence to this. It's just a number of someone made up one day and like, we're all talking about it somehow. And like, that's great. But you just put it on and feel it and try it. And then you get your own impression. Uh, I mean, numbers are meaningless. I mean, I think generally the idea here (laughs) was that we're not like completely like. Are you the corporate guy? Yeah. Corporate's going to, you know, lean in here because he's already (laughs) buying a round of beers, apparently. Uh, So, no. So, generally, they were categories made before my time, you know, of like a 130 flex and 150, 110, 120, you know, whatever. Those are generalizations that are now kind of held to because, I mean, like, I have a background in water kayaking. It'd be really cool if we used volume, you know, like, but then where's the volume? You know, it's just going to open up more questions, right? Because you could have just monster heel pockets or whatever. So the num- the answer is, is like, figure out like, what is the range? You know, what is general range of boots? It's like 98 to 103, right? So then those numbers kind of represent where they fit in the range, generally, just like the flex index. And then you can kind of work your way in between, but you should always try on a couple of boots. So the question is, why are there no women on this panel? And do, and, do we need, <laughs> and do we need women-specific boots? So one thing is, I don't actually know of a female boot product manager in the world. We have an engineer. Engineer. So that's, that's part of the answer. Um, second part of the question, do we need women-specific boots? Depends what you're calling a women's specific boot. We obviously all make women's boots with short cuffs, lower liners. We are looking right now to see if there's a need to do a women's last compared to our men's last. So like I say, we've just got a female engineer. She's a 23.5, so she can't obviously wear our sample size. So we are moving forward with development in a 27 and a 23. So she can be involved with this. Now, 
when we come into this, there's a lot of factors to it. Obviously, lots of super expensive molds are as well. So traditionally, we grade them down and we're going to use the same one. We're now looking to see if there's a need to have the women's one. And when we went into this, it, I think a lot I can say here, but there's a project in the works where we are doing this. And we started off going, yeah, we're definitely going to have a women's last. And then we did some work and we're like, you know, I'm not sure we need it. We're still open to it. But a women's specific last is awesome, but it's actually not that different than the men's we found. Um, not to say we won't go that route in the long run, but a last is a last. If it fits well, women's feet aren't that much different than men's in the actual foot. There's a lot of data out there. There's grading differences, which is interesting, but the overall shape, it isn't crazy different. So men's last or women's last is not as big a difference as you may think we found. Um, I agree. I think we've done... <laughs> Yeah, there's like a study done by a guy who I can't properly reference and, you know, far smarter than me about just like the curve of analysis done and like starting from, you know, a point of more center and then building out versus, you know, on any one end and how you can get to a better result for the the greatest majority. Um, Like that's an answer. It's not like a great one. Right. I mean we have a ton of women on our team that, that do develop our products. Our product manager for bindings is a female, you know, it's like, we're not absent of that talent within our team, but it, yeah, it's a, it's a big one. And I mean, like we're huge advocates to build smaller boots. We're fighting for it pretty regularly. That, that's, a, that's, <laughs> the main, that's the main thing. Yeah. That is like, that's part of it is like, we need yeah. to arrive at some much smaller sizes yep. to to satisfy this not for all women yeah. of course but like the the size range is not reaching far enough down to <laughs> satisfy look around talk to mm-hmm. a lot of amazing women around even totally. like here at the event and it's like they they would they would probably be happier with a bit more selection in smaller sizes yeah. that, that's i think the point uh, I've seen, and that's not for every woman, but that's like where where the woman's category is suffering the most from what I've seen. Just on that point, be vocal. Mm-hmm. Like we will make the smaller boots, but if a retailer isn't going to buy them, we can't justify it. So we need people to be vocal and saying, "I want you guys to have a twenty-one boot." The reta- retailers need to understand there's a demand there. Mm-hmm. If the retailer doesn't buy a 21, we can't make it because it doesn't make financial sense. So be vocal. If you guys want stuff, be vocal. And by be vocal, you mean go into shops. Yep. It's like be vocal in the right places. Exactly. It doesn't help saying it to us because we listen, yeah. we want to do it. But if a retailer doesn't buy it, it doesn't get to you guys in the end. So what I think I heard you say is that as we like to do here at the summit, predict a little bit into the future, perhaps, you know, two, three, five years out, we might be in a world where we're seeing more unisex ski boots across a broader range of sizes. No. One person nodded. No. Okay. I hope so. Okay. I'd love to be able to answer that question better, you know, because there is a group commercially. It, it's not. Like, you know, like it's tough. It's a really hard problem to solve. Yeah. Unisex doesn't make sense. I think the unisex women's selection difference isn't as critical. I think it's that the boots that we choose to make in the women's sizes fit and work better for those, those women. And I think what Tom was saying about choosing a different size to start with in the development makes a huge difference and is something that we're focusing on for future projects as well as not starting with the standard white male size and getting that one perfect and grading it and stretching it as needed but saying let's start the first one for 23 24 and let them get perfected the way it needs to be before we digitally scale it and i think that'll means more better fitting boots for women coming this is something, for example, we have done on the race workup line, DRS, for example. Uh, 
the smaller sizes, 22, 23, 24, were developed following the feedback of female athletes, while 25, 26, 27, mainly following the feedback of male athletes. So yes, there are the develop, but at the end, the development is not that different. It's not that yeah, it's different, but it's not too different world. We're going to leave it there. Um, once again, uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Um, thanks for a little bit of tipping of the hand of where we might be headed in this whole ski boot world. And um, perhaps most importantly, uh, you know, given that yesterday was Valentine's Day, um, go tell all of your loved ones that you love them a 130. I think that was a big takeaway from the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. From the panel. So thanks to all I of think you. 150. Yeah, the 150. Yeah, yeah it would be okay, better. I didn't, I'm going sure. 200. <laughs> 200. Okay. Um, thank you, really, to all of you. And um, between the binding panel, between this panel, I think you all have, I think, appropriately problematized ski boots. And I think the nice thing about that is these things are more complicated than a lot of us might sometimes think. And it is actually kind of reassuring to hear that smart, thoughtful people are working on these things. And so I'll just say for all of us skiers out here, thank you. Uh, keep it up. You know, do better. Keep it up. All those things. And we love you. One thirty. Uh, thanks, everyone. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's episode of Gear 30. Don't forget to register for the Blister Summit so you can see conversations like these in person as well as hang out with pro athletes, find an amazing ski community among a ton of great people coming from all over the world, test gear from tons of brands, ski with blister reviewers, product designers, and so much more. And that brings us to this week's edition of Crashes and Close Calls. Recently, I have been pretty safe and also lucky, so thank goodness for that. But I was reflecting not too long ago on one of the worst crashes I've ever had, which was over five years ago while working as a mountain bike guide. It was that same classic move. I washed out my front tire on a super loose and dusty corner, except I was going extremely fast and flung myself about 30 feet off the trail onto a steep embankment. Miraculously, I could tell that I was mostly unscathed as soon as I got up, other than I landed with a ton of force on my left hip. And in my hip pocket, I actually had several random objects, and those objects were enough to actually partially sever my TFL muscle. I didn't find that out till much later, but to this day, that muscle is still partially severed. I tell you this story because at the time, I had horrible health insurance with a very high deductible. So to me, it was better to continue guiding and working and just ignore the problem than to take that trip to the doctor, even though my legs swelled up by at least 30% and it was hard to walk, much less ride a bike for a few weeks. And this is why it's imperative to sign up for our Blister Plus membership. Not only do you get great benefits for being a Blister member, but you also get some of the best, most comprehensive outdoor injury-related insurance coverage out there. So if something like this happens, you don't have to make that financial decision to avoid the doctor, but rather a decision based on your own health and well-being, knowing that a trip to the doctor won't break the bank or put you out. It's also a good reminder to not ride with too much in your pockets. I had to learn that lesson the hard way, so take it from me. Yikes. All right. Well, that concludes this week's episode of Gear 30. Thanks, of course, to our excellent producer, Justin Bob. Thanks to all of you who attended last year's summit and made it the most unforgettable and memorable week of the season. And thanks, of course, to all of you for tuning in. We'll talk to you again real soon. Cheers.